Greetings and welcome to the audio etheric transmission, The Tales of Sage and Savant. Our tale stars Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Mix Abigail Entwistle, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. If you want to learn more of the stories of Sage and Savant and the reasons why I record these broadcasts, you can pick up our book, Transmigrations, available on our website and everywhere books are sold. This month's program, entitled These Things You Cannot Know, is sponsored by Clockwork Alchemy and features the music of Victor and the Bully. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. When last we saw our doctor, she was returning from a holiday in the court of Charlemagne. All members of our trio had family obligations to attend to for the new year, since they had been away for Christmas, so they agreed to meet again in January for the first transmigration of 1896. And yet, the first file I have is dated 29th December 1895. It seems the doctor did not go to her mother's as she had said she would on the previous evening. She has transmigrated to Paris once again, to Le Chargé de la Fere and into the body of her young man. <coughs> the SBMI was evidently occupied when Sage arrived. He was seated at the breakfast table in the main dining room, a steaming cup of coffee at his elbow and a generous plate of food in front of him. When the doctor's consciousness arrived, his body went into spasms and collapsed onto the floor. Petra felt a shooting pain through the center of her skull like a ten-penny nail driving up through the occipital nerves in her neck, cleaving the brain from its stem. Her screams bring Calypso on the run. No, Charles, what's happened? What's wrong? It is not Charles! Dr. Sage? Yes! What is stabbing me? Oh, nothing is stabbing you. You're experiencing a sympathetic occipital nerve reaction due to the forced eviction of the occupying consciousness. It should ease in a few moments. Calypso helps the doctor into a chair, and a butler scurries in to clean up the smashed crockery. I'm sorry you're experiencing this, doctor. <sighs> Entering a body already occupied by a transmigrationist creates an occipital feedback loop caused by the forced eviction. 
This pain is part of the negative feedback loop the physical body uses to restore itself to equilibrium after the upset of transferring consciousness. In typical transmigrations, you do not experience this pain because you are not present when the original consciousness leaves the body. The pain comes from overlapping the departure and arrival of two consciousnesses. Uh but I've occupied a body with living consciousness before, and it the pain did not feel this bad. Ah, oh, the dashing highwayman. Yes. At Claude Duval, I entered him twice and did not experience pain like this. Is he one of your SBMIs? No, Monsieur Duval is not an SBMI. We believe he may suffer from epilepsy, which in some manner clears way for a second consciousness. We could learn more. Should you choose to revisit the rogue and share your files with us here? Bring my results papers here to this office, you mean? It would be one way to prevent a loss of data. But hadn't your organization said at the beginning that you did not wish to see my in-progress notes for experiments, only the published results? There are some that feel that it is best indeed. I suspect that bringing you files directly might break the rules for transmigration. Do you not follow those in the future? Oh no, we do follow them. It is just that in the area of SBMIs, it might be very helpful to learn how two consciousness can occupy a single body without causing such horrible pain, that's all. Of course, in the future, you can better avoid this by simply sending a cable with your expected arrival, and we can ensure Charles's body is ready and waiting for you. I thought Charles was the departing transmigrationist. Ah, no. This body is named Charles. We find it is much less confusing with SBMIs if we simply use the name of the body rather than our assigned numbers. Do all the multiple inhabitants of Calypso agree with your assessment that certain files should be brought to you directly? No, I'm afraid not. If we two are to agree, just between the two of us, to share more information than Les Chargés de l'Affaire in general thinks is prudent, how might we go about it? Just as we ask you to cable when you wish to visit, I could send a telegram when I'm in sight you and we are free to meet up. Will that do? Nicely. Now, what can you tell me about the markers in the brain for creating SBMIs? Are you feeling better then? Uh, yes, the pain is receding. And who, by the way, are you specifically? What name should I call you? Ah, uh, these are things you cannot know. I'm sorry. You can continue to call me Calypso. Now, let's get some breakfast into you, shall we? And then we can adjourn to our lab. I wish I had more to share with you, ladies and gentlemen. But something has gone wrong, and the remainder of the file is corrupt. I'll need to skip ahead. Ah, here we are, uh, picking up on January 2nd. It is a fine, bright morning. Silvery crystal light filters through the glass roof of the laboratory, and clouds overhead travel in clumps across a blustery winter sky. Petra, dressed only in a wrapper, enjoys a cup of tea at her desk, reading the broadsheets and contemplating the news. Good morning, Pet. Good day to you, Erasmus. I hope all was well at home. Oh, you know, same old, same old with my mother. Bess Carter's cow crossed the property line and destroyed an entire of the hedge. Grant, the butcher, sent the entire wrong cut of lamb for Sunday oh, roast. Oh, dear. None of her children visit often enough. 
<laughs> she must be in prime health once again if her complaining has reached such a level. Oh, my mother. The only woman on God's green earth that can complain more when all things are going well. And how is your own mother? I didn't see her. It turns out she wanted time alone. We've made plans for Burns Night. Oh, my dear, I wish I'd known. I would have had you up to mine. We could have shared a New Year's kiss. It's not seemly to kiss a woman who has no intention of marrying you. Uh, not in public, perhaps, but I have spoken to my mother of our arrangement, and she approves. Oh, she's hated all the girls I've courted anyhow, and thinks that you're quite the thing. All the girls? Oh, yes. Um, well, the two I brought home before meeting you... <laughs> Well then, perhaps this shall be our pattern. One passionate kiss on New Year's and... <laughs> Good morning! Good morning, Abigail. <laughs> Hello! Abigail pushes a cart out of the elevator and into the room. It is stacked high with alembics and clockwork timers, chains and brackets, and all manner of copper tubing. What on earth do you have there, Abigail? This is the bones of an automatic feeding system for my creatures. While working in the menagerie, I realized that much of the framework you have put in place for maintaining our bodily health could be adapted to maintain creature health when the three of us are away. What a good idea! Not mind you that I'll be taking long trips all that often, at least until summer comes. But it does pay to be prepared. Good thinking, Abigail. Will you need our help? I can manage. That is, if you are planning to transmigrate today. Well, I had hoped I could convince Erasmus to follow me into the future once again. Ooh, the future, my favorite country. Oh, Abigail, before we get dressed, did you read the news? About Professor Rontgen's x-rays? Yes, isn't it exciting? When we get back, I'd like to set up a cathode ray experiment of our own. I have some thoughts on using the system in conjunction with magnetic waves. I think we could produce highly specified readouts of the electrical impulse systems in the physiognomy. That sounds really exciting. And it might be a great avenue of research, too, now that the limb reattachment has gone on to other departments. Imagine if you could illuminate the living nerve in a chart so that surgeons could better see the live connections to the nexus points. My thinking exactly. Creating a visual map of the electrical response would be invaluable to medicine. Don't you think, Erasmus? Oh, maps are inextricably linked to the sharing of trade and successful travel between regions. I would imagine that a map of the medical condition would have a similar effect on knowledge of the human landscape. Exactly. Well then, are you ready for travel to unmapped territory? And so Abigail set her cart full of future apparatus near the gates to her menagerie, while Sage and Savant dressed to travel into the future. Then she joined the pair on the central dais to set the trajectory and recall chimes. So, where are we off to today? We've just been 1,000 years into our past. What if we're daring and go the same distance into the future? Hmm, I would not be comfortable going so far. Perhaps that is why I chose this destination on a time that I knew you would be unable to join us. What Petra means is... Abigail knows what I mean. The last thing I want to do is make you uncomfortable, dear. But to truly understand the dangers as well as the benefits of transmigration, I must venture both forward and backward through time. It then behooves me to choose to journey in the more uncomfortable direction at times when your studies will prevent you from coming along. That's all. I know, Doctor. Professor, 
You will keep her safe, won't you? <laughs> as safe as I am able. Well then, let's get you dialed in. And so, Abigail sets the trajectory for North America in the year 2896. What will our explorers discover there? We'll find out after this short musical break. And now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the talented melodical expressions of Victor and the Bully. Thank you. 
And now, back to our show. When we left our heroes, they were on the way to the far future, and the far future is where they presumably are, though it is difficult to tell as they have not yet awakened. They appear to be on some kind of ocean-going vessel. Two bodies, one male, one female, lie in state on a large silk-covered bed in an opulent room with expansive windows looking out over a choppy ocean. They are dressed in sleeveless jumpsuits of some type of clingy fabric. They are slender, lithe, and for all appearances in prime health. An electronic message plays in a loop over hidden speakers. Your nanobots have been turned off in contravention of UN Resolution 287.624. You must reactivate your nanobots immediately or face fines and restriction of movement. Ladies and gentlemen, I know as little of nanobots as you do. I know they were microscopic machines designed to help usher in the transhuman future. I know that they were part of the reason for the cataclysm, along with climate change and resource collapse. But the technical knowledge surrounding the folly of injecting minuscule hive computers capable of controlling every iteration of cellular life into the human bloodstream was lost in the disaster that followed. I do know that scientists of the Silicon era thought that nanobots would be the solution to disease and aging and bodily deformities. The bodies our heroes have occupied are certainly free of the latter. But I am beginning to worry that something has gone wrong with the transmigration. I can feel the presence of Sage and Savant, but neither body seems to quicken with life. Steve? Mom! Steve! What? This isn't funny! What are you doing? The knocking on the door does not waken our sleeping pair. The computer continues its monotonous complaint, equally non-responsive to the person on the other side of the door. Steve! Look, I'm gonna get Charlie to drill out the door locks if you don't answer me this minute! Steven! Mother! Hello? The bodies on the bed do not stir. They show no signs of life. They are not breathing. Their eyelids do not flutter to the rhythm of dreams. And yet, Petra and Erasmus are here. I can feel it. A woman who appears roughly the same age as the bodies on the bed pushes into the room past a canister-shaped robot retracting a drill arm from the bored-out remains of the door lock. Oh, no! Mom, what have you done? Computer! Message received. Cease playback. Charlie, I need you. Come. The computer silences the looped message as the woman attends the bodies on the bed. She pulls the female to a sitting position, revealing a cable that is connected up and into the base of the skull and presumably the occipital nerve, the exact point where Dr. Sage has killed more than one man. The robot levitates into the room, coming to the edge of the bed. It extends an appendage from a panel at its midpoint and examines the place the cables attach to the skull of the woman. Is this how these bodies died? Had they committed a joint suicide by stabbing each other with these cables? How then were they laid out so neatly? Wait, the robot has fastened onto the cable and is pulling it free from the base of the woman's head. There is some kind of clear filament pulsing with light retracting out of the skull. 
the eyelids begin to flutter as the last centimeters of filament release. As soon as she notices this, the daughter lays the mother back against the pillow and hurries around to the other side of the bed. The robot follows and they repeat the extraction procedure for the male body. By the time the man's eyelids have begun to flutter, the woman is at last waking up. Erasmus! It's Mary, mother. Who is Erasmus? Mary? Oh, yes. Mary, is there- No, I'm, I'm here, pet. Oh, that was a strange journey. You two did this for some kind of high? What were you thinking? Did what, Mary? I I'm sorry, but you're not making much sense. Turned off your nanobots, that's what. Told the pilot to sail into the dead zone, that's what. Disappeared without telling anyone where you'd gone, that's what. Paid the captain and the crew to desert the ship, that's what. If Charlie's emergency protocols hadn't kicked in, you'd be dead by now. Not everything you just said made sense to me, but I can tell you're upset, Mary, and for that I'm sorry? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, yes, we didn't mean to upset you. Did you say we dismissed the captain? Then who is sailing the boat? The AI is sailing the boat, just like always. Oh, that, well, that's good then. Nothing to be concerned about if AI has the helm. I'm sure he's a good sailor. Ma, did the neural interface give you brain damage? Charlie, can you scan her? The robot approaches Dr. Sage, extending a second arm and weaving a net of electric energy between them. Realizing that she must be committing gaffes based on her limited understanding of the circumstances, Sage decides to divert into more direct action. Uh, that won't be necessary. I think I just need to get my feet under me and get some fresh air. I'll feel more myself after that. We can always run a scan later. Dear, care to join me? Without waiting for approval, the doctor stands, holding out her hand to the professor. Quite, yes. Bit of fresh air is just what the doctor ordered. Uh, you don't mind, do you, Mary? I don't mind, but shouldn't you both have a full neurological and then we can get your nanobots reactivated? Uh, yes, yes, we can do all that in a little while. For now, I really need that fresh air. Sage pulls Savant through the open door and into a short hallway. Stairs at the end of the hall lead upwards, and they take them to emerge on deck at the aft end of the ship. There are four groupings of lounge chairs around a horseshoe-shaped bar. Beyond the chairs is a wide expanse of deck leading to the railing. Sage drags the professor to the rail. The sea is choppy and wind-tossed, but the deck beneath their feet remains steady. There is no sound, and though the space is open to the elements, they feel no wind. This is very strange, Erasmus. My eyes tell me we are on a boat, and yet the ground beneath our feet is as steady as a building. How can this be? Well, it has long been the holy grail of shipbuilding to design a hull that lessens the motion of the water. It is one of the primary forces driving ship design through the eras. Well, that and speed of transport, of course. We're a thousand years into the future. Perhaps these people have finally cracked the ability to move through water without the rolling. I grant you that is possible, but how is it that we can stand on open deck, that we can see the effect of the wind on the water, but we neither feel nor hear the wind itself? I have no explanation for that. As Erasmus spoke, he reached past the rail and encountered a force field. Yikes! What was that? 
An electrical field of some kind? Did it shock you? Uh, no, but it wouldn't let my hand through. It seems there is an invisible wall of some kind. Oh! <laughs> Interesting. Uh, they must be generating a broad-spectrum Faraday pattern. But how have they made it impermeable? And how is it not burning us? The doctor was so preoccupied with the force field that she failed to hear her daughter come up onto the deck behind her. Mother! Quit playing with the force field. Do you want to call the authorities? Interrupting the force field will call the authorities? You should know. You designed it. Huh. She, your mother, designed this? God, what is wrong with you? Were the nanobots also keeping you two from becoming insane? I'm sorry. You are right. Maybe we should all just sit down and have some food and talk over what needs to happen next. Food? You actually want to chew something? Swallow something? Now I know you've gone mad. No, no, we do not have to get our nutrition any different than we usually do, especially if it makes you uncomfortable. But at least we might sit down? Reluctantly, Mary agreed, and they moved to the closest chair grouping to sit. Once they settled, Mary reached forward and swiped her hand across the table, which lit up to show a cleverly disguised screen. She tapped on a few icons and a tray in the table's base opened to reveal three steaming mugs. Here, drink your Nutribroth. I'll call Charlie for our injections. Mary tapped at a couple of additional icons on her screen and then chugged her own cup of broth in one long gulp. Sage and Savant took cautious sips and made pinched faces at the bitterness of the brew. Come on, Ma. Just chug it down. That's what you taught me. You keep calling her Mom. But how is that possible? You appear to be about the same age. Yep. Okay. Now I know you've lost your mind. Mom is 411. I'm just barely 225. Just because you've only been on the scene for a hundred years or so doesn't give you the excuse of playing stupid. Before Erasmus could think of a reply, the robot arrived and Mary offered it her arm. The robot placed a slender appendage against her bicep for just a brief moment and then came over to the professor. Not knowing what else to do, Erasmus also offered his arm. The appendage was evidently medical in nature because he felt the tiny pinch that was common with injections. The robot moved on to Petra, and Erasmus noticed that he felt instantly more awake and alert, as if the injection had somehow given him the energy from a full night's sleep. Oh, my. What is in that injection? It's most efficacious! So, you've had your nutrients and your rest. Are you thinking clearer? What in the world compelled you to turn off your nanobots? You know they will never let you back into Arcadia without them. Well, yes, I suppose. We felt... It was time. Oh, to live without them. But you can't live without them. That's exactly what I'm trying to impress on you. Not only will you be quarantined on this boat, but... Oh, well, that's not such a bad thing. This boat is very nice. But your body will start to decompose. You could be forming wrinkles right now. Every frown, every smile, every angry twitch will mar your skin. A few wrinkles never killed anybody. Why, in my day, we looked at wrinkles as a badge of honor, a roadmap of experience. Uh, look, Mom, 
I know you grew up in the time where not every baby got the chance to get inoculated with bots, but those days are gone. We don't have to live under the tyranny of the genetic lottery anymore, and you can't honestly tell me you want to go back to that. Right now, I can't honestly tell you what I want to go back to, because I evidently don't understand what is wrong with turning off the nanobots. Why don't you fill me in? Because, Mom, disease... Age, mental instability, death. So you are against living the human experience to its fullest? No, I am for living through the human experience. Do you know how many things are out there that are trying to kill you? I am quite well acquainted with death. Thank you. Well, uh, since this conversation seems to be turning in circles... We will leave the doctor for now and pause for a word from our sponsor. Ah, the age of steam. The splendor in science. The opulence in adventure. For one glorious weekend, the temporal rifts tying the San Francisco Bay Area to the world that might have been, and indeed, to alternate worlds beyond, shall be open for a grand meeting of minds and hearts. Join the adventure of Clockwork Alchemy at the Burlingame Hyatt Regency Hotel, March 22nd to 24th, 2019. Featuring musical guests of honor, Aurelio Voltaire and the Bay Area's favorite swingers, Lee Presson and the Nails, Clockwork Alchemy promises to fill your days with amazement and your nights with melody. Come steam explorers and mad scientists, naval officers and airship pirates, monster hunters and vampires. Welcome diesel punks, Edwardians, neo-Victorians, burners and dandies. Be you colorful rogue or refined lord or lady, your destiny calls. Engineers, shovel in more coal. Clockmakers, set your alarms. Inventors, present your extravagant contraptions. And join the cast of Sage and Savant at Clockwork Alchemy. Learn more at clockworkalchemy.com. Yes, dear friends, you heard it here. Clockwork Alchemy is a grand meeting of minds and hearts celebrating the splendor and the science of the Age of Steam. And now, back to our show. In an endless circling conversation, our doctor has learned that her host body lived to an extremely ripe age specifically through the auspices of microscopic hive devices that reset and rehabilitate human cells. These devices are now required by law, and to sail into any port in any land requires a systems check to be sure the bots are functioning correctly and at full capacity. Turning them off is a capital crime punishable by extreme isolation. Unfortunately, once the bots are deactivated, they are flushed from the system in a matter of days, and new bots must be medically administered. This typically happens at a malfunction, and the deactivated bots are medically examined to determine cause of the fault. Sage was eventually able to calm the daughter and convince her that they should all rest and recuperate before planning a course of action. As soon as they closed the door in their suite, Sage and Savant began to speak, each more excited than the other over the things they had observed. They have found a way to Can make you think of the applications for a controllable, impermeable Faraday field? Do you actually think the human body can survive without food? Well, they can't possibly have eliminated all food. Maybe they simply take supplements for certain meals. No, most likely. Oh, what did you think of the electro-servant nerf mabob? Uh, Charlie, I think she called it, oh, it, responded to Mary's voice commands. It's simply acoustically attuned somehow, or... Clockwork. 
I don't know, but I would love to find out. Shall we go explore? No, we'd best wait a few minutes. We want to be sure Mary is good and asleep before we venture out. Good call. When the coast is clear, we should go meet that AI chap that's sailing the boat and get some answers out of him. So they wait in their cabin, going back over all the things they have observed until they are certain that it is safe to sneak out and explore the ship. The passageway is clear. Come on. They followed the hallway as silently as they could in the opposite direction from that which they had taken earlier. The yacht they were on was truly an opulent mansion at sea. They passed a billiards room, a lounge with a grand piano in the corner, and numerous closed doors which they assumed were bedrooms. They came to a stair at the end of the hall and Sage beckoned for Savant to follow her upwards. At the top of the stair there was a wide landing furnished with overstuffed chairs and more of the tables with inset screens. Two hallways branched off of the landing along the port and starboard rails. Floor-to-ceiling windows looked out over the darkened sea. Right or left? I could imagine that either will lead to the bridge. In most ships, the pilot house spans the front of the vessel from rail to rail. We may still need to climb a level or two, though. They continued along the right-hand hall past many more closed doors, and as the professor had predicted, the hallway terminated at the base of a narrow stair. They followed this upwards to come out on an upper deck. This deck was completely exposed to the night, though the force field kept the wind from affecting them. It was a disorienting feeling, but not one they would have time to explore. Passengers are not allowed on the command deck. Please return below while the ship is under sail. The robot Mary referred to as Charlie appeared out of a small glass cupboard next to the stair. Though there is nothing truly menacing about its short cylindrical body, something in the way the lights on its front panel are flashing is very alarming. We're sorry. Uh, we do not mean to intrude. Uh, we've simply come to have a word with the pilot, AI. Once we've spoken with him, we'll be happy to return below. Now, if you could just point the way... The AI does not speak with humans directly. You are welcome to access it via the usual channels on your in-room computer or a lounge interface. Now, please leave the restricted area. The robot extended its arms and herded our heroes back down the stairs they had just come up. It seemed content when they sat down in a pair of the lounge chairs and retreated to the shadows. What do you think that clockwork chappy meant by in-room computer? I doubt it meant a person to do calculations. Is there any other sort of thing you can think of that computes? Well, of course, there's Charles Babbage's difference engine, which Martin Weaver improved upon via the work of George Schutz. So that machine could do logarithmic tables, but I don't see how calculating mathematics could lead to a communication with a pilot. But of course. Well, don't you see? Mathematical formulae are the background of all mechanical and organic processes that would explain our clockwork friend here, and perhaps even these. An excited doctor leans over the table with the inset screen and swipes it to life as she had observed Mary do earlier. Now, these little pictures must all stand for things. Oh, like the pictograms of the ancient languages, including the most famous Egyptian hieroglyphic. Let's see here. Perhaps I can figure them out. They puzzled over the pictures, trying to decipher their meanings. But without any sort of key, all they were doing was recognizing shapes and guessing. They were so engrossed in the attempt that they did not hear the approaching footsteps. 
There you are. I have just gotten off comms with Gary, and he says it's too late to reactivate your bots. The AI tells me, and Charlie concurs, that you somehow tampered with the emergency box and destroyed all the injection canisters in the first aid kit as well. Why would you do this? Did you want to die? The young woman is obviously quite agitated, and Sage feels her own ire rising to meet that of the intruders. This body is responding with a great rush of negative emotions. Everybody dies, Mary. Don't you say that. How dare you say that. Nobody dies. Nobody ever dies. That is the deal. Oh, calm down, dear girl. Here, sit. Uh, Charlie, can you get Mary a nice cup of tea? Tea? What the hell is tea? Oh, now that is a bridge too far. What is wrong with these people, Erasmus? They don't eat. They don't drink tea. How can they even consider themselves civilized? You've gone mad. Like in the hollows, you've gone mad, and you're going to take me with you. Mary rises as she says this and crosses to the robot waiting in the corner. She presses a panel marked with a red cross and pulls out a long silver object about 15 centimeters in length. She hides this against her thigh and moves back towards our heroes. Really? I've had quite enough of this from you, Mary. You? You've had quite enough from me? Well, I... I have had more than my share of you. You do something stupid, and is it Gary that comes? No, it is me. Every time, it is me. This is just your latest in a long life of doing stupid things, and I have had enough. I'm not going to take it anymore, Mother. If you were my child, then my advice would be that you need to calm down. You should just go back to bed. Ah! Whatever the doctor had been about to say was lost in the sudden rage that her words provoked. Mary leapt towards the pair, a scalpel gripped in white knuckles. She slashes the professor's neck in one swift strike and then falls on the doctor. Our poor heroes, caught completely off guard, were defenseless in the face of such hatred. And before they could even draw a breath, they were both back in the familiar laboratory at King's. <gasps> what was that? Is everything all right? Why are you back so soon? Murderous, ungrateful child! Now, Petra, it's all right. We are home. No, 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 I don't want to be home. I want to know what a computer is. I want to get a look inside that hovering servant canister. I want to decipher the pictograms. I want to put my hands around that Get a bottle of women's friend the doctor keeps in drawer in her desk. Quick, be calm, pet. We're here. Everything will be just fine. Will a swallow of laudanum cool the doctor's rage? Was the shock of being murdered a grievous one after they have grown accustomed to a more gentle leave-taking? Is Sage's mental state becoming unstable? We'll find out in the next episode of The Tales of Sage and Savant. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a Twin Star production, brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Eddie Louise as Sage, Chip Michael as Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Abigail, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Soundtrack music, sound design, and audio engineering by Chip Michael. The theme song for season three was interpreted and recorded by Valentine Wolf. Special music in this episode was provided by Victor and the Bully. Check them out at victorandthebully.com. 
we would like to extend our gratitude to this month's sponsor, Clockwork Alchemy. Episode 306, These Things You Cannot Know, was written by Eddie Louise. Are you interested in the historical and scientific information we included in this episode? Like us on Facebook or check out our website sageandsavant.com to find the facts behind the fiction. And finally, as always, we urge you to remember that death is no barrier to science.